Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. It's good to see you this morning. Great seeing you from far. Those of you joining us online, I want to welcome you this morning. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 33. Open your Bible up there. I am old school. I like when you bring your Bible. Person, it's on my phone. Yeah, but you use your phone more than you use it as a Bible. Bring your Bible. There's something special about having your Bible. Both and. It's not one or the other. Just, you know, it's, there's something about the sound of pages turning. You know what I'm saying? Um, so Exodus 33, put a marker in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And we'll finish the message up in 1 Samuel chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me remind uh, all of us, if you have not done so already, make sure you vote, vote, and vote, all right? Believers need to vote. And before you go to the polls, if you haven't already, let me just remind you, I think a lot of people look at politics, a lot of believers look at politics as though it were a sport where there are two teams and you decide which team you play on. Um, If that's the way you want to see politics, that's fine. Let me just remind you, there are officials on the field. God has put his children on the field to keep both teams in check. I am not on team A. I am not on team B. I am called by God to be an official of both teams on the earth. So when you go to vote, don't vote your conscience. Can't show me that in the Bible. Somebody just said that and it sounds cute. Vote God's word. Okay? Well, Preston, that's my vote. Ah, but you were bought with a price if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Make sure you involve him in this process, all right? So just go vote. If you haven't voted already, make sure you vote. You got less than about a week and a half or less before you're unable to do so, all right? All right. We are starting a new series this weekend entitled Mandate from Heaven. A Mandate from heaven. And we're talking about the mission of the church, the mission God has given to his church, which means it applies to us as a church. But as we kick this series off, I want to remind you that everything that applies to the church corporately applies to you personally. Let me say that again. Everything which applies to the church corporately applies to you personally. Here's the why. Because you are the church. I'll show it to you in scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, speaking to believers, all of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. Anything and everything that applies to the church corporately applies to you and me as believers personally. Now, in starting a series on the mission of the church, Where must we begin? I'm not going to go through the entire series in order of importance, so to speak. But remember, firsts are important to God because the first belongs to God. And so where do we start? Some people, when talking about the mission of the church, think that the most important mission of the church is evangelism. Some people think it's benevolence. Some people think it's political. Some people think it's meeting in a pandemic. But I think there's one mandate. God has given his church that is above all the others. And we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about this particular mandate. To house his presence. 
This is the mandate for the church of God, from God himself. I want you to house my presence. The house of God without the presence of God is a disappointment to God. Is it possible that during COVID, when we were not gathering as a church for a couple of months, and I was preaching to this exact room with no one in it for like 14, 15 straight weeks, no one was in it, okay? Not one of you was present in this room. Is it possible that part of what God was doing during all of that is reminding the church that what's most important about the church is not how many people come to the church, but that he is in the church. Because even though you weren't here, he was the entire time. I was never alone. And trust me, oh, he filled this room. I was bummed you weren't here. But I was grateful he was still here. Is it possible that part of what God was trying to do through all of COVID is remind the church what makes my church my church is me, my presence in it. That leads us to the first of three points in part one of this two-week message, How's His Presence. Point number one, the presence of God must be a non-negotiable for the people of God. The presence of God must be a non-negotiable for the people of God. Now, some of you are already thinking, well, uh, present, it is a non-negotiable. I mean, God is everywhere. Okay, you bring up a good point. There are actually three major distinctions of God's presence. Let's talk them through. First, omnipresent. God's omnipresence. He is, the word omnipresent means everywhere present. He is present everywhere at all times. God is omnipresent. So you might be thinking, well, I mean, God's presence is always in the church because God is everywhere. Okay, that's, that's factual, but there are even greater measures of God's presence. That brings us to the next distinction of God's presence, the indwelling of God's presence. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us when we become believers in Jesus that the Holy Spirit does what? Comes to dwell on the inside of us. We're going to talk about that later in the message. The Holy Spirit dwells on the inside of every believer. So we have the omnipresence, the God is everywhere present. Then we have the indwelling presence of God. God dwells on the inside personally of each believer in Jesus. But there's a third distinction. And when we talk about housing God's presence, it's actually the distinction of God's presence which we are referring to. God's manifest presence. It was God's manifest presence in the bush which was burning. It was God's manifest presence in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was God's manifest presence to which Jacob in, in Genesis 28 said, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't even know it. Here's what the word manifest means, to reveal. God reveals himself. Okay, there's a word picture attached to this word for manifest in the Hebrew. And the picture is this. It's like a jar that is completely full and has a lid tightly screwed. And someone untightens, loosens the lid and removes the lid so that the contents in the jar can come out. This is the manifest presence of God. Okay, so the omnipresence of God, he's 
always, everywhere present. The indwelling presence of God when we become believers, the Holy Spirit dwells on the inside of us, but then the manifest presence of God. And here's how I would just simply describe it. It's when God supernaturally shows up. That's why Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't even know. He's saying God was already here. I wasn't aware. See, when God manifests his presence, he's making you aware. He's not just present in every place. He is present in this place where you are. Omnipresence, indwelling presence, manifest presence. The church must never become a place to merely worship God. It must always be a place where people can be guaranteed to encounter God. Don't just come to church for a song and a sermon. You can stay home and do that on YouTube. The presence of God must be a non-negotiable to the people of God. Now, let me take this statement and turn it to you as a believer, not just to the church. The believer must never become someone who merely worships God. Sounds better than not worshiping God, right? But the believer must never merely just be someone who worships God. They must also be someone through whom people can encounter God. What's true about the church needs to be true about the believers. God wants people to encounter him through you in every room you ever walk into. He doesn't want to just be dwelling in you. He also wants to show up with you, making himself manifestly present in the same way you are manifestly present when you walk into a room. Now, Exodus 33, probably my favorite chapter in the the Old Testament I don't have time. I wish I could just read the whole chapter to you. You should read it every day this week. It's a phenomenal chapter. The first 11 verses, God is making sure that we understand that he and Moses have a very special relationship. In fact, God goes on record in his word saying that he talked to Moses face to face the way a friend talks to a friend. Okay, so that's the context. Then in verse 12 of Exodus 33, we see a very private conversation between Moses and his best friend God, between God and his best friend Moses. Now, don't ever think this is only true of Moses. What's true of Moses, God desires to be true of you, that the two of you be best friends, okay? It's part of what we're talking about these two weeks. But I want you to see the conversation between Moses and God because it's crazy how good it is. Exodus 33, verse 12, we're gonna break it down verse by verse. One day, Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. Okay, hit the pause button. Let me give you my paraphrase, all right? Moses says to God, hey, cupcake, really? I really think he said cupcake. You keep telling me about the promised land. It's great. You keep telling me I'm going to the promised land. It's great. You keep talking about this promised land. That's awesome, fine, great, grand. But you haven't told me who's going with me. In essence, Moses is saying, hey, look at this. This is a cluster. Like, these people need structure. They need leadership. What team is going with me into the promised land to get these people in? You're telling me we're going. That's great. Which, in essence, was serving as a promise. They were going into the promised land. Moses is like, that's great, but who's going with me? Watch God's response. Verse 
14, the Lord replied, I'll personally go with you, Moses. <laughs> that's dirty right there. See, I think we just read over things like this and we're like, oh, that's so cute. God said, I'll be with you. But basically, Moses said, God, never let go. And God said, Jack, I'll never let go. Come on, guys. So much bigger than that. Moses says, who's going with us? And God says, hey, cupcake, how about I personally go with you? But God doesn't stop there with the promise. He says, and I'm going to give you rest. Look at it. And I'll give you rest. And everything will be fine for you. Literally translated. And everything will go well or be well for you. Okay. Is this not the man who at the time has been leading the people of Israel through the wilderness for decades? Is this not that man, Moses? Okay, if you'd been wandering through the wilderness for decades and the God of the universe said, hey, I know you are exhausted. Good news, I'm giving you supernatural rest. How many of you would run around like crazy and go, I'm about to get supernatural rest, I'm exhausted? Okay, none of you, it's good. That's good, because a lot of you are crying out to God, I need more rest, right? God says, I'll give you rest. Then God says, hey, basically, this is my paraphrase, Moses, I know you've been on the coldest of cold streaks for quite some time. Your shoes haven't worn out, I get that. But I know it seems like things haven't gone well for you since the whole slavery thing. Guess what? Everything's going to go well for you now. Don't you think you'd celebrate that? That God's going to give you rest and everything's going to go well? Watch out of the three promises God makes to Moses, which one? He only talks about one. Watch which one Moses talks about. Verse 15. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. Okay, pause button. Let's paraphrase again. Here's what Moses says to God. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that a possibility in this whole deal is that I and we go there and you don't go with us? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I've never even considered that as a possibility. I got to thought you were always going to be with us. If you're telling us there's a chance you will send us and not go with us, hey, let's clear this whole mess up right now, Moses is saying. We ain't going. I ain't going to the land of the promise without your presence. I'll stay right here if that's where you're going to stay. Okay, question. When was the last time you talked like that? At a fork in the road. Where you could go either way. And instead of making it about the promise at the end of one of the paths, you said, forget all that nonsense. Just tell me which path you're taking. That's where I'm going. This is what Moses is saying. And watch his why behind if you don't personally go with us, don't tell us to leave. Verse 16, Moses says, because how will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? Watch this next line. For it is your presence among us, which sets your people and me apart from all the other people on the earth. Moses says, hey, what makes us us is you. Like, everyone talks about the land of the promise. The promised land, 
Moses is going, I don't want to talk about that right now. If your presence ain't going, I don't want the promise. Now let's fast forward, and I want to show you something that rang my bell theologically a couple months ago. Around Deuteronomy 33, Moses is getting to the end of his life, and God says, hey, I'm going to let you see the land of the promise, but only from a distance. You're not allowed to go into it because of what happened at the rock the second time. So he says, God says to Moses, go to the top of Mount Nebo, and I'm going to show you the land I promise to your ancestors. I'm going to let you see it from a distance. Okay, question. Who is believed to have wrote, written the first five books of the Bible by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Moses. Okay. So when God says, hey, you can look at the land of the promise, but only from a distance. There's not another verse in that chapter afterwards, if I remember correctly. In other words, Moses doesn't respond with griping back to God. Whoa, that's not fair. I've loved these people for decades. Now you're telling me I can't go into the land of the promise? Moses doesn't respond by griping and complaining to God because God says he can't go into the land of the promise. Why? I can't say for certain, but I'm going to give you what I think is quite possible. And Exodus 33 is the basis for this belief. Because Moses made the presence of God more important than the promise from God. Moses basically stands on Nebo, sees the land of Canaan from a distance and goes, yeah, it's okay. Y'all all think you're better than me because you're going into the land of the promise and I can only see it from a distance. But go back and read Exodus 33. I saw God from up close. He showed me his glorious presence. Read the rest of Exodus 33. I'm not even in going that far. God says, I'll certainly do what you've asked. And Moses, like a best friend would do, says to God, Okay, well, if you look favorably on me, show me your glorious presence. Another way to say it, show me a side of you you've never shown anybody before. <laughs> See, we all think Moses died miserable and mad at God because he could only view the land of the promise from afar. Never, ever forget that when you prize the presence of God more than the promise of God, you don't weep when you don't get into the land of the promise because you're standing in the presence of God Almighty. Point number two, God has always longed to be present among his people. This isn't something that just happened. It has always been the case. God has always wanted to be with you. Always. He didn't just wake up one morning and automatically just think, you know what sounds good to me today? I want to be with her. No. This has been the case from the beginning. And at this point, we're going to walk through several very important moments in Scripture where God dwelled among the people. Not just in a burning bush with one person. Not just in a dream with one person. But we're going to walk through some moments in Scripture where God, I believe, was sending a very important message to every one of us. So we have to start at the very beginning, in the garden. Remember, firsts are important to God. So we go all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. This was God's original statement that his heart was to be with us. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. Hit the pause button, question. 
is the reason Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden because God was a loud walker. In other words, no matter how far away he is, he walks like a herd of elephants, and so when he walks, everyone hears. Is that the implication of Genesis 3? No. It's that he was so close to where they were that they could hear him walk. See, when I walk out onto this stage, you actually can't hear me. But if you were next to me, you could hear my feet hit the stage every time they do. You could hear my jeans rustle together. Why? Because you're close enough to hear me walk. The garden was God's original statement to you. that He wanted to be this close to you. Keep going. So they hid from the Lord God. Remember, they just sinned among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Hear me talk about this from time to time. It's one of my favorite questions in scripture. It's one of the most romantic. The God who is everywhere and knows everything says to Adam, where are you? He already knew and he was already there. His, om his omnipresence was already present where they were hiding. God says, where are you? So as to communicate, hey, I want to be with you right now. Why don't you want to be with me? Where are you? Why are you hiding from me? I want to be with you right now. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Preston, I consider myself to be a theologian, and it's actually very unwise of you to begin this little journey of God dwelling among man with Adam and Eve, because truth be told, God kicked Adam and Eve out of his presence. Oh, 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 mon frere, you are incorrect. God didn't kick Adam and Eve out of his presence. He kicked him out of the garden. Let that settle into your soul for a sec. And let me help you understand why he kicked them out of the garden. It wasn't because he was disgusted by them. He had told them, don't eat from these two trees. They ate from one of the two, and what happened? Immediate separation from God as a result of sin. What was the byproduct of eating the fruit of the other tree God said don't eat from? The tree of life. They would live forever. So God says, I can't keep them in this garden any longer. And here's why. Because I know Preston. I told him not to eat from two trees. He's already eaten from one. Next week, he'll eat from the other one. And I cannot bear the thought of him living forever, separated from me. So if I have to remove them temporarily from this garden to keep them from damaging our relationship for eternity, that's what I'll do. You can't go back in there anymore. But he was never saying, you can't be in my presence. And here's how you know. We get into Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. God says, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary. Hebrew word tabernacle. It's the word for tabernacle. Have them build me a holy sanctuary. Why? So I can live among them. God didn't kick man out of his presence. He just got him out from within arm's distance of the tree that would cause them to be relationally separated for eternity.
He said, hey, tell the people to build me a tent so I can live with them. God wanted to live among people. You must build this tabernacle, verse 9 says, and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Now, the tabernacle, and I can't spend a lot of time here, the tabernacle, there's a, a phrase in Scripture that is used interchangeably with the word tabernacle. Anybody know what it is? Tent of meeting. The tabernacle was often referred to as the tent of meeting. Why? Well, personally, I think that's one of the best nicknames, so to speak, for the tabernacle. Because it reminds us, any place where God dwells, he does so because he wants to meet there with us. The church is called to meet, not just to gather. Big difference. And let me prove it to you. You can gather with people. You can come here every weekend and gather with people and not meet with God. But you cannot meet with God and people not begin to gather. I remember feeling like for the first time when, I, when we started this church, the Lord saying, Preston, if I am present in the room, people will drive not just from near, but also from far to be in the room where I'm in. It's his presence that sets his people apart from all the other peoples of the earth. It's his presence that sets his house apart from any other house on the earth. So we go now from the tabernacle to the temple. Remember how the temple got fired up. David, man after God's own heart, loved him some God of the universe. God says one day, uh, David's looking at his castle and he's looking at the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, the temporary tent. David's looking at his big palatial palace. He's looking at this, comparatively speaking, shabby little tent. He's looking at this palatial palace, this shabby little tent where God is. He's looking at this palace where he lives. He's looking at this shabby little tent where God lives. And David goes, no, 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 this cannot go down like this. We got to build a temple. You got to have a structure better than what I live in. And God kind of, like a gangster, goes, can man really build anything that I belong in? One of my favorite lines. But it was David's heart. So you can't stay in this tent. So... God says, unfortunately, David, you've shed too much blood. You can't build the temple, but your son Solomon will do it. I want to show you in 1 Kings chapter 8. Many of you know this chapter. Just before it, Solomon starts giving sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice. Why? Because the ark was going into the temple. Remember, in the Old Testament, the ark of the covenant upon which the mercy seat sat, the ark of the covenant is what housed the presence of the Lord within the tabernacle. Okay? Remember, the Israelites, when they had the ark, they would win. When they lost it, they would lose every battle. Okay? So now, the, the ark of the covenant, the presence of God, is being delivered into the temple. And look what happens. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, the most holy place. So inside the holy of holies, the most holy place where the manifest presence of God resided. Okay? Incidentally, can't, can't really do this justice in this message without enough time. But remember, when Jesus died, what happened? The veil of that place was torn, thus sending a message to the ends of the earth. My manifest presence is going everywhere now. It can go anywhere now. 
not just in this little holy huddle of the holy, most holy place. The Ark of the Covenant goes in. Look in verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the God, uh, the house of the Lord. Oh, that the glory of the Lord would fill the house of the Lord all over again. I'm not talking about his omnipresence. I'm not just talking about his indwelling presence. I'm talking about his, he shows up, makes himself revealed, makes us more aware he is present in this place. I don't need empirical evidence when he walks into the room. I just need him to walk in. Solomon throws a party of sacrifice because he's so excited. The presence of the Lord is now in the house of the Lord, the temple of God. And we move to the New Testament. And we move tabernacle, temple, now to a person. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word, capital W, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, this word dwelt literally means to tabernacle. Here's, here's a paraphrased way to say it. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and pitched a tent among people. How many of us would agree with the following statement? Jesus is the God who came to save us. How many of you would agree with that statement theologically? Just shoot your hand up high, okay? All right, it's not a trick question. Some of you are like, he tricks us every once in a while. Like, is he semantically trying not to use a word to trick us and be like, ha, ah, you're so theologically stupid. No, I'm not, okay? I'll ask again. How many of us believe in the statement, Jesus is the God who came to save us? Okay. Before you can say, Jesus is the God who saves. You need to understand that Jesus was the God who came. Odds are that you have at least one person in your life that really likes you. And when somebody really likes you, I've noticed something. They call you a different name than the people who merely know you. Have you ever noticed that? Like the people who love you most have what's called a nickname for you, right? You could even say a pet name. I, I've divulged this before. My wife has an intimate name for me, Georgie. My name is James Preston Morrison. I have no Jorge in my name. <laughs> but when that girl calls me Georgie from the other room, Georgie, I come running because that's her sweetheart calling me a name no one else knows to call me. Now, you call me Georgie, I'm going to walk in the opposite direction because that's just weird. <laughs> My name ain't Georgie. That girl can call me whatever she wants. I've told her before, I have a rule with you. I don't care what you call me, just so long as you call me. Georgie, fine by me. People that love you probably have a different name to call you than the people who merely know you. One of the things I love about God is he goes on record time and time again and says, 
hey, let me tell you another one of my names or nicknames. I'm not just Yahweh. Let me tell you another one of my names. Well, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, God goes on record in Scripture prophetically making a declaration about the coming Messiah and the way we would know who the Messiah was. And it involves what I would say is a nickname, another name for the coming Messiah. I want to show it to you. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, here's how you'll know this is the Messiah, the, the God who's come to save us. Here's how you'll know. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name or and will nickname him Emmanuel. Do you know what Emmanuel means? God with us. Okay, this is not just a, a verse we read at Christmas time, people. Do you understand that the Father is saying to mankind, hey, one day my son will come, and when he comes, I want you to know something. One of my favorite nicknames you call him will be God with you. It's as though God is saying, every time you use the word Jesus, you can also use the phrase God with us. I'm a follower of God with us. I gave my life to God with us. Good morning, God with us. What's up with you, God with us? How's it going in your world, God with us? God with us, I want to give my life to you. See, I think we hear Emmanuel, and we think it belongs in a Charlie Brown movie. And yet it's one of the most romantic nicknames anyone has ever been given. Preston, just so you know my heart for you, I sent my son and I gave him a name. He is God with you because I just want you to be reminded my heart for you is always to be with you. Then, fortunately or unfortunately, however you see it in John 16, Jesus says, hey, I got to leave for a little while. It's actually good for you that I go. And why was he saying it's good for you that I go? Because he was saying, then the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will dwell within you. Jesus is saying, listen, I am the God who came to be with you. But when I temporarily leave for a little while, the Holy Spirit is going to be sent by the Father to be the God who lives in you. The only statement more powerful than God naming his son, this is God with you, is for that same God to put some of his spirit on the inside of you. He says, Preston, listen, here's how badly I want to be with you. I no longer am okay with just being around you in all places at all times. I want to come live on the inside of you. I never want to leave. That's how badly I want to be with you, child. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, For you, speaking to every believer, for you are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will dwell in them. Okay, I'm going to try not to be too honoring, but it's going to be hard on this. Why are you always telling me life is so tough and so bad when I bump into you in the lobby? When the God of the universe dwells on the inside of you? I don't understand. I get things can be temporarily difficult. But if you're a follower of God with us, he is now God in you. You're right. Your life is horrible. I feel so sorry for you. I can't even imagine how miserable life is when the God of the universe dwells on the inside of you. This whole time, I didn't understand. Now I get it. You're right. You should be miserable. You should weep and lament constantly every morning you wake up because when you look in the mirror, you don't just see you. You see God in you. Man, your life is rough. Please hear my heart. I'm not trying to make light of difficult situations. I'm just trying to recalibrate all of us. It's never as bad as we pretend it is because he made a promise. Hey, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Want to know how I proved that promise? I put myself on the inside of you. God sent his Holy Spirit to live in the inside of us. I will dwell in them and walk among them. That, those are relational words. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 19, or do you not know, believers, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whether you realize it or not, the Holy Spirit is in you, whom you have from God. Another way to say that is God intentionally did it. To make a statement to you just how badly he wanted to be with you. He didn't settle for being the God all around you. He didn't settle for being the God with you or among you. He goes the distance and says, here's how close I want to be. I'm the God who is in you. And then we end in Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Let's just recap. God's original statement in the garden to all of mankind was, I want to be with you. The tabernacle was God's response to man being kicked out of the garden. The temple was God's response to man no longer needing a temporary, movable structure where his house, where his presence resided. Jesus was a response to the temple no longer housing God's presence. Go read Ezekiel 10. For hundreds of years, the temple of God did not house the presence of God. Jesus was God's response to the temple no longer having his presence. The Holy Spirit was God's response to the earth temporarily losing Jesus. And Revelation 21 is God's reminder at the end of the book that from beginning to end, 
I have always wanted to be with you. The whole book is about God's heart to be in your presence and his desire for you to be in his. And it has always been this way. It brings us to point number three, and it's a quickie. The scariest thing about God's presence is his absence. The scariest thing about God's presence is his absence. Go back to Mount Sinai when the manifest presence of God shows up on the mountain. Dark clouds, incredibly loud thunder, earthquake, lightning, scary stuff. And how do the people of Israel respond? They say to Moses, hey, it's not good for us to go into that. Like you go into that and whatever he says, come and tell us and we'll do it. But it's not good for us. We'll die if we go into that. They were afraid of the awesomeness that came with God's presence. But that is actually not the scariest thing about God's presence, his awesomeness. The scariest thing about God's presence is his absence. You know what scares me most about hell? It is not the fiery, hot nature of its heat. What scares me most about hell is the ice-cold absence of God's presence. It isn't the flames that scare me to death. It's that he's not there. Flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 4. I want to show you something that as a pastor in vocational ministry, this is very, very scary personally to me. I told you that the Ark of the Covenant in Old Testament times housed the presence of God. And 1 Samuel chapter 4 is a moment in history where the Philistines capture the Ark. And they take the presence of God away from the manifest presence of God away from the people of Israel. The Israelites are destroyed in battle that day, and a messenger comes to Eli, the priest, and delivers the news. And before the verse we're about to read in verse 18, the messenger says, we've lost, we've been destroyed in battle. Your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have been killed, and the ark has been captured presence of God is gone. And I want you to see how Eli responds to the news of the messenger. First Samuel 4.18, then it happened when the messenger made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. I want you to think about this for a minute. A messenger comes and tells Eli, your sons, your beloved sons have been killed. And Eli doesn't freak out as a father because his sons have been murdered. Eli freaks out, falls, breaks his neck, and dies because the presence of God is gone. I want to share a, a statement with you that I hope you remember for a long time. The healthiest way to know or to measure where you are in your personal relationship with God is how you behave when he's no longer present. Eli's daughter-in-law, incidentally, I'm not gonna read it, but the next verse or two tells us that she goes into labor 
and she's dying in child labor. And before she dies, she names the son whom she just gave birth to, Ichabod, which means the glory has departed and she died. Eli and his family clearly felt some kind of way about the manifest presence of God. So much so that when he was gone, to them, life might as well be over. Here's what scares me. That's one of two options. There is another option when God leaves the room. We're going to fast forward to Luke chapter 1. And I'll set up Luke chapter 1 before I read this to you. In Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel has a vision from the Lord and the glory of God departs. It leaves the temple. And now over 500 years have passed. I want to read you this very scary verse. Luke 1 verse 9, as was the custom of the priests or their habit, he, Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. This is believed to be in the Holy of Holies, most likely outside of the most holy place. Here's why this is so scary. Because scripture tells us that for over 500 years, the presence of God was not in the house of God. And Luke chapter 1 verse 9 lets us know that for over 500 years, the people doing the work of God in the house of God we're doing it in the name of God, absent from the presence of God. It is entirely possible for you to live every day of your life in the omnipresence of God, experiencing the indwelling presence of God as a believer, and yet never experience the manifest presence of God when he walks into the room reveals himself and makes you more aware than ever before that he is there in that place as though he were nowhere else, just there. I want you to grab the communion cup that you were given when you walked in. If you don't have one, we'll pass one around to you. Just hold on to the bread. If you didn't get the elements, just raise your hand and we'll make sure you get them. Just hold on to the bread. I wanna make sure you understand importance of what it is you hold in your hands. You hold the bread and the cup, which Jesus said represent his body and his blood. It started point number two in the garden to remind us all God's original plan. His heart from the beginning was to be with us forever and always. Then sin entered the world. And his plan 
really kicked in to place. His plan from the beginning was named Jesus. What you're holding in your hands are what I like to call God's relational reconciliation plan for you. You see, your sin, just like Adam and Eve, caused separation between you and God. And in the same way, God could not bear the thought of being apart from Adam and Eve forever. He could not bear the thought of being apart from you. So he sent his son to die in your place. You are holding God's relational reconciliation program. His name is Jesus. I want you to hold that bread, which Jesus said represented, and represents his body, which is broken for you, killed in your place. you take this bread. I just want you to try and attempt to wrap your mind around how hard it would be to send your one and only son to die so that you could spend forever with somebody else. He didn't hesitate. Let's take the bread. The same way you hold the cup as Jesus says, represents his blood, which was shed for you. Why was it shed for you? In the same way when, that when you drink this cup, it coats your throat. It's to serve as a reminder that when this blood was shed, it coated your sin. Theological way to say it, covered your sin. So that you could go boldly not in shame, boldly into the manifest presence of God. Jesus willingly shed his blood so that you could spend forever with his Father. As you take this cup, if there's some besetting sin or some sin that you just, the memory of it from years ago, you can't shake, let me give you a piece of advice. As this juice coats your throat, why don't you try letting his blood cover that sin? Let's take the cup. You can just set that on the ground or to the side, and then when we leave, you can just toss it in the trash on your way out. I want every head bowed and every eye closed. God gave you a physical way to experience his heart to be with you forever. You just experienced it. 
God went to the greatest lengths in all of history to prove to you that he just wanted to spend forever with you. That's how badly he wants to be in your presence. But we're going to take a few moments right now in his presence, responding. You just saw how badly he wants to be in your presence. Now, let us show him how badly we want to be in his. Let's just sit with him for a little bit. There's a king in this room Oh, there's a king in this room And better is one day in your courts Better is one day
If, if you need to pray with anybody, maybe you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus. You didn't even know this is how God felt about you. You thought it's just the way he felt about church people. Now he feels this way about everybody, including you. John 3.16 doesn't say, for God so loved the church, for God so loved believers, for God so loved the world. That includes you. If you don't know Jesus personally, after I dismiss, come tell one of my friends, hey, I just want to meet Jesus today. I'll lead you in a simple prayer that will change the rest of your life and eternity. If you need to pray with somebody about something that's going on after everybody's taken off, just come pray with somebody. Stay as long as you need. You just want to sit in your chair and just be in the presence of the Lord for a little bit? You can do that too. All right? I'm going to pray over you. God, thank you. Thank you for every person. See every one of them. You know how many hairs are on each of their heads because you count them as they fall. Lord, I pray that as they go from this moment together, that they would do so mindful of the fact that the God of the universe wants to show up tangibly, manifestly every room they ever walk into. God, may they see your face in a way they never have before. May they hear your voice in a way they've never heard it before. You are the God who longs to be with them. God, may it be said of each of them, they are someone who longs to be with you. Show up in their everyday lives, oh God. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.